listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. I had a very interesting experience today. Uh, I was down in Los Angeles at uh, uh, my brother's place. He and his wife moved from uh, London back to uh, California uh, about a month ago. And they're living in Culver City. And for those of you who are fans of the big musical a la MGM style, you know, the uh, Metro Golden Mayor Studios is in Culver City. And they're about two blocks off of the, the main drag there. And I had this really incredible desire yesterday morning to take my brother's bike and ride up just to the it's a very famous gate, actually, and look at the gate, you know, because I, believe it or not, uh, I'm a, kind of an old, old film buff. And I'd seen, I'd seen the studio lot before and so forth, and I know most of Culver City was chopped up, actually, to form other, other movie studios and so forth. Actually, there are three there. There's, there's, uh, there's MGM, there's Culver Studios, which is still independent, and then there's another one. I want to say Columbia was there. So it's, all, it's pretty much all Sony now. And by the way, if you were here for a Dharma talk, it'll come around. Just give me. <laughs> um, uh, I rode, I rode, uh, rode his bike then uh, yesterday morning up, up to the, the studios and so forth and rode down the, the road a little bit further and found the Culver City Hotel, actually, which was a fixture in several Laurel and Hardy films, uh, all sorts of really cool stuff that you could just kind of, you know, kind of sink into a little bit. The weather was soft and warm, and uh, I turn around and there is the. Uh, you guys remember um, where uh, uh, in Gone with the Wind, the name of the house. Does anybody remember the name of the house? Tara or. Tara, which of course in Buddhist lore is the goddess of compassion. Um, and of course enslavement pretty much embodies compassion. Uh, but regardless, I turn around and I look and the, the, the uh, uh, Tara, the way I understand it, was converted into actual office, office buildings for um, uh, the Culver, Culver City Studios, or Culver Studios, excuse me. So I'm looking at it, it's like, oh my God, there it is. Huh, that's amazing. You know? And you know, the images of uh, Clark Gable kind of strutting up the steps there and so forth. It was just, it was just really, really kind of cool. And I decided to, to run across the street and get a cup of coffee. And I walk into this place where they are roasting the coffee there. And for those of you who've ever, like, really, I mean, when, when you take it in, not just a good cup of java, but the entire process, it's, it's a miracle. It's a reminder of the miracle of little things. And so I went up and I ordered this uh, Peruvian, uh, cup of Peruvian, freshly roasted Peruvian coffee 
which is a little lighter than it's just delicious anyway whatever uh, and I turn around after I grab grab the uh, cup of joe and take a sip and I just kind of take it all in trying as best I can to to not only taste the coffee but everything that went into making it and the, the sunshine that ripened those beans you know the 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 blood the sweat and the tears of these people that picked them all of it and I turned around and as I'm looking at everybody who's in the cafe it's filled they're all sitting at you know these these cute little tables and so forth I saw precisely no conversations going on. Everybody was on their wireless. Everyone was punching stuff in. They were tweeting. They were talking on the phone, sitting directly across from people. For all I know, they could have been talking to each other on the phone. But it was absolutely remarkable. This total connection with all things in that simple sip and also recognizing what seemed to be separation or were they? I guess it just depends on your perspective, which is exactly what our work is. Looking at our perspective as much as anything else. What is your perspective as you go through the day? Do you see yourself as connected or disconnected? Do you see yourself as part of something bigger? Do you see yourself as separate from that thing that is bigger? We could play with this a great deal. But I think it's really key that as we begin to kind of walk along the spiritual path, we see things as both and, as opposed to either or. As opposed to divided, we see things as inherently unified. Indeed, we can start to measure our own spiritual maturity, our maturation on this path, the more we see all things out there as reflections of what's going on within our own hearts and minds all the time. I was so struck looking at videos uploaded by cell phones on YouTube this past, these past several days, noticing this rather heroic series of situations that's unfolding on the streets of Tehran. People saying no. People questioning. Of course, it depends on your perspective. But they were out there. And uh, obviously the most, f the most famous of these was this young girl standing by her father who gets shot in the chest. Maybe you've seen this. It's incredibly graphic. You get the sense that she's starting to look into this person's uh, cell phone camera who's, who's filming this. She knows something's wrong. You can see it in her eyes. She knows something is deeply wrong. And then she just kind of starts to fall back. Anybody who's ever seen someone go, you've seen someone release like that. And then in Farsi, it was being said, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, as she was dying. Isn't that going on in each of us? Doesn't every one of us have a voice somewhere that's saying, do not be afraid? Isn't there a piece of each one of us that not only feels 
like the victim of an intentional bullet fired from somewhere up above? Isn't there something in each of us anxious to eradicate or get rid of a perceived cancer? It's all right there. It's all in the cafe. It's all in the cup of coffee. It's all in this moment. The extent to which we can see that everything reflects us is the extent to which our spiritual practice begins to mature. Welcome, grown-ups. Let's sit. There's this great line that the, uh, the Buddha had. We think the Buddha had because we don't know anything about the Buddha, really. But um, we're assuming that the Buddha actually said this. Um, he said, uh, the question was posed, if I'm remembering the story correctly, what is, it, what is it that you teach? He says, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. That's it. Suffering and the end of suffering. And what I would propose to you is that uh, suffering, suffering is kind of interesting. Um, and I think there are a couple different ways of looking at suffering. One of the ways we can look at it is at its, at its most pure, suffering is a reminder that we are connected with all things, all people, all situations, that everything, in fact, is a, rep, well, uh, how would I describe it? Everything is a reflection, I guess is the best way to put it, of what's true in us. So we'll use the earlier example I gave of the video of the woman who died on the streets of Tehran protesting. Um, the tears that I wept as I saw that and I'm guessing that many of you, if you did see it and you were moved emotionally by it, on whatever level, if you cried or not, isn't so much the issue. But if you were moved by it, you felt like, ah, I'm, I'm suffering because of this. That's indeed very, very appropriate. There's a second kind of suffering. And that's the suffering that is the needless repetition of stories that come from the obvious and natural suffering. So it might go something like this. You see the event, there's a tear within. You feel it. You're right there for it. You're with it. And it's going to destroy you, is what goes through your consciousness, your awareness. In some capacity, this is horrible. And so what happens is we turn it into a story. And that story can be those bastards. Right? That might be, that's just one example. But we turn that pain, since we can't stay with it, the frequency, the vibration, whatever you want to call it, is so massive that we have to turn it into a story that we can cling to to give us stability. The perception is 
that if we were to meet that terror full on, that it might wipe us out. That's usually where our uh, subconscious or ego, our small self goes with it. It's like, screw that. I will now hate. And it will go a step further. It will usually go into this bizarrely uh, uh, powerful egoic space of, I know what the right outcome should be. I know what the right outcome should be in this situation. Now that's just, that's just a kind of a slow motion unpacking of what might have happened to any of you watching what was going on in the streets of Tehran. You might look at this in a more deeply personal way. How have you been suffering? How, what have you been dealing with that tortures you to the point of, oh my God, I can't deal with this, so boom, you create a story about it to give your ego, your small self, some type of stability. That's why we do it. It might be a financial issue. It might be a health issue. It might be a familial issue. It might be a spiritual issue. Whatever. If your suffering goes from big suffering, which is, I am one with all things, to small suffering, which is those bastards, which is actually one of the lines used at the end of most South Park episodes, if you've seen it. <laughs> For those of you who don't watch South Park, I, I'm going to just, it's a, do it, okay? Um, uh, secretly, if you're embarrassed by it, just turn it on and you'll see that in every single episode there's this existential brilliance that goes on where one of the characters gets killed every single episode. <laughs> Poor Kenny gets wiped out and you know the line is, you know, they killed Kenny. You bastards. <laughs> and that is exactly where ego, okay, where our small where our small self goes into goes into this space of stability. Because now it has an enemy. Now it can oppose. The other space which is unopposed, which is just being with all that is in that moment, that is resting right there without flinching, without moving, that is the path to freedom. So what we can do is we can use our lives as laboratories. Tomorrow, and the next, okay, this is homework for the rest of your life. Every single day, find something that you need to turn into a story and see if you can catch the experience as it's happening. Catch the authoring as it goes down, because it'll happen like that. And if you've been dealing with a great deal of this before, if this is your typical habitual way, we have what we call karma. Another way we could translate karma is tangle. Okay? And this tangle, this big knot, your job is to cut through that knot. Just like Alexander did the Gordian knot. What do you try to do? You try to untie it? Well, you could do that. You could also take the sword of practice and just cut right through it. I would argue that's the shortcut. 
you can spend time trying to undo it bit by bit. But we're all here for a very short amount of time. In this precious life, it might make sense to follow what some of the ancients have talked about, okay, in all traditions. In all traditions, they kind of they go for this. I would also argue, and this is going to probably make a lot of enemies, um, maybe not in this group so much, but in the, the wider practice, spiritual practices in general, I have found that while I absolutely admire and respect tradition and the direction it tends to point its practitioners, I also have found that as the, this aging population that has kind of gone into have been the pioneers of, uh, you know, of, of kind of a, uh, a more expansive Buddhist thought. I'll just pick on Buddhism, for instance. You could do this with Christianity, Vedanta Hinduism, Sufism, uh, Kabbalah as well. There's been this tendency in some cases to soften it so that it's about feeling good and it ends there. And I would argue that you could do that. Nothing wrong. Nothing wrong with working at a spiritual practice so that you can feel better. But that isn't the teaching. Whatever these guys said, these men and women, these sages of old, they had two spaces that they tended to go, just like we saw two kinds of suffering. We saw big, big suffering, which is that you just feel the world. Very natural Okay, And you have small suffering, which is personal. Instead of the impersonal, oh, you have the personal, god damn it. You know? Similarly, with our spiritual practice, what we can recognize is that there is the sword, which cuts through the tangle of karma. And you also have a different approach, which tr tries to pick it apart bit by bit. Okay, the picking it apart bit by bit is really nice. It's gentle. Okay, it's tender. It's really loving, and all of this is beautiful. But if it's not bolstered by a practice that has a spine, a backbone, has some steel and some fire ain't going to work very well for most people. Similarly, if you're all about the blade, if you're not about tenderness at all, which I've been accused of, but that's okay. If you're not about tenderness, if you're not about heart at all, then what do you have? You have an internal fascism masking a spirituality. That ain't going to work either. Integrating those two very, very carefully and knowing where you are in relationship to that is absolutely critical. Are you somebody that wants to be taken care of? Are you somebody that wants to be parented in this work? Look at that. You need to get off your ass. Well, actually, get on your ass. <laughs> if you're somebody, on the other hand, who has this tendency towards bring it, you know, you might want to soften up a little bit. You might want to recognize that you can't do this alone. You're the alchemist. You are the one who's going to be doing this walk. You are the one who's going to be turning this lead into gold. So you better pay attention to what's real within. Where do you land? Honestly, without lying, 
to yourself. Where do you land? Know that space because it'll serve you immeasurably in this search. And I'm going to kind of give you, I'll spoil the surprise for you here, but you'll recognize that the search actually is, is not a search that goes anywhere past where you already are. It doesn't go out. And it doesn't just go in. When the search, the search actually kind of starts falling away the minute we start seeing that there is no boundary between self and other. We recognize that they are miraculously, all things are part of me and I am part of all things. I am a reflection of the infinite and the infinite is a reflection of me. All my activity comes through this space of the infinite. The idea of an I or a me or a ego or me-go or whatever you want to call it comes through this space of the infinite. There's no escaping it. And when it starts to resonate deeply within our hearts and minds in whatever measure we need, more sword or more ease, what happens is we become, as I've said repeatedly, really useful The universe works through us. We don't get in its way. And this majestic approach to living allows for an integrity and an integration. I use both the roots are the same. An integrity and an integration into everything that we do. It's not about healing because nothing is broken and we see it. We see the, th the things that actually force that big compassion, that big tenderness, that big set of tears to arise. And we meet it fully without flinching. We become a participant that is actively engaged, not passively withdrawn. We move through life as life. Nothing needs to be attained. We just reflect what is true. And we practice that every single time we sit. Every single time we're really honest with ourselves. Every single time we take our awareness and watch. Watch what's going on. Really. And we don't lie, and we don't hide. We just participate. Wow, that was quick, yes? Yes, ma'am. I'm so glad you mentioned that. That image of, images of the Iranian girl. I saw that on your infinite final Facebook posting. It was just, I mean, she's so beautiful and young and so Stop holding it. 
you have a story in your head that it's not going to help anybody. What if you stopped holding on to that story? Then what happens is her death actually can inspire some type of potentially deeply integrated activity. Do you understand? In other words, we, 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 we cling to it. Now, like uh, uh, One of the biggest mistakes that, that I think can be made here is that we start seeing that, oh my God, she was, she was killed. Those bastards. Musavi clearly was the better choice, yet people don't realize that he himself doesn't have a necessarily clean record when it comes to human rights. So it's much more complicated than black and white. And when we start becoming very, very comfortable with gray and its infinite gradations, we can then become useful. It's not that you're not useful already, especially if you're engaging the world, you're doing service and so forth. That's all great. But we're talking about a different order of engagement, a different order of... You become a different order of being from that space. So be very, very clear about the overwhelm. Let it in. Let it out. Don't hold on to it. Don't keep it away. Let it in. Let it out. You'll see that it goes through you and it will almost certainly inspire something in you that comes from a place of generosity. It's the letting it out that's hard. It's the letting the sadness out. Yeah. Right. Well, especially if we've, we've built entire lives around suck it up. Or if we have built entire lives around let your feelings out. Let your, if you let your feelings out, everything will be better. Which is not true either. It's not any more true. Well, there's some incredible research I was just reading about this that I thought was so fascinating. There was this school of thought. I know I've shared this with many of you before. Uh, especially in the late 60s, that you go in there and you beat the hell out of uh, a pillow if you're feeling angry. You let that out, right? Well, they, they've actually found that this is, it, it's counter. It, it works counter to someone's ability to heal. It actually increases their level of ferocity. It increases their negativity, it inc- right? It gives it play. We indulge it. So if, backing up just a little bit, if we don't indulge our feelings, but we simultaneously don't negate them, now we're walking the razor's edge of awakening. So that's kind of back to watching. Yeah. Back to watching, being very clear, being very clear about what's going on. Yeah. Yes? Um, I think you tell great stories, by the way. Great. Great stories? You you think I tell great stories? (laughs) Great. Let go of them, please. (laughs) But I like your talk. Reminds me of um, years ago. I did a training, and, and, and they said something I think that's similar to what you're saying. They were talking about in the world, there's what's so. Mm-hmm. It's just like the facts. What's so? Mm-hmm. The facts are the woman was shot in a certain way, and then fell back. Then there's the world. There's two worlds of our story mm-hmm. about what's so. Mm-hmm. And what gets us in trouble is our story. And we often place our story, our, those bastards, mm-hmm. they shouldn't have done this to her or whatever, on what's so. 
and we think the story is what's so. Right. What's true. Right. And that's what gets us into all sorts Right. We become addicted to our stories yeah. as opposed to open to what might be. Facts get us in trouble too because facts are stories. Well, but would you call she was shot. I haven't seen the film. She was yes. shot and then I guess she fell. Right. So, so she, she was shot and she fell. We, by your definition, we can look at those as facts, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, the minute we start deepening our practice, though, we might see that experience and recognize the validity of that event. Okay. But we also see that she is me. The delineation, the division between us and them falls away. Me and her, or me and it, we start seeing that we are all reflections of this infinite spaciousness. That we are all infinity dancing, conscious. We're awakened space. I don't, I don't know what word to use. But so, so we start developing a certain grace and a certain ease with facts and recognize that we need to be careful about what is factual. We especially need to be careful with what you described there, which is letting our stories appear as factual because they're always only partial. Just like those facts, she may have been shot. We may have watched on this video her life bleed out of her. But there's a depth to it that we'll never be able to touch based on that information. There's so much more to it. And being open to that so much more in every situation freaks egos out because they're like, how, how the hell could I ever handle that? You know? I, I, I compartmentalize and categorize and that's how I survive and that's how I keep the, the trains running on time and that's how I get the kids fed and off to school and that's how I make sure that this family will have this much income and that, right? All of those are fine. Those little stories are fine. When we cling to them, they diminish our capacity for helpfulness and we begin to suffer in exactly the way that the Buddha told us we didn't have to suffer. I'm glad you like the stories, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yes? Um, I understand that. Well, I'm good at stories. I can create them like nobody's best. You're not alone. <laughs> I know that, yeah. too. I actually like your stories. <laughs> I'm not wild about it. <laughs> okay. um, and you started out mentioning that watch for the moment that the story comes into play. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess my question is I'm bopping along <laughs> and I'm watching and 
I see the story coming into play that I've created around an injustice or right. something horrible or whatever. I see the story start to bloom mm-hmm. that the ego is creating. Where do I go away from that? Where's this? Where do I step? You know. Don't go away. Recognizing that it's a story. Right. You don't go away from it at all. You, you, in, in, as a matter of fact, you begin to become very intimate with the story itself. I mean, if it's if it's helpful, you could you could inject this little phrase into that experience the minute you see it happen. You say, ah, but wait, there's more. Because there is. But you know, I know the story is false. Right, and, and the minute just my mm-hmm. warped right. overlay of the reality of girl getting shot or whatever right. horror has befallen mm-hmm. me or whatever. It's just an overlay of the actual experience and it's not correct. It's not, it's false. Can you grieve for that? That falsehood? Can you grieve for that lie? Can you grieve for the lie of the I that's been saying that all these years? Because that I is also a very deep story. Maybe you can't. And that's okay. But that's a really cool next step. Well, I think I can. I'm just not quite take. Where do I go then? I have a really story. Right. I have a really cool idea. Look at the story of the I that writes the story. If this sounds way too esoteric, just deal with it for a second. This is this is really good stuff. The I that's writing the story. The I, right. Again, the number of times I heard the word I come up there suggests that there's a lot of I going on. And that there's a lot of addiction to this sense of I. Absolutely. And I is separate from everything else, right? Absolutely. So there's a lot of separation that you're feeling. That becomes a story. That separation becomes a story, and we call it I. The I sense, or the I, is the sense of being separate from all things. And we give it a name, we call it ego. We call it the small self. It's a big struggle. Right, right, right. But can you watch that I? Is there any type of awareness that can watch that I? Because if you can see the eye authoring a story, that which is seeing the eye author a story is free from I. That's practice. And that's where the sword comes down onto the knot and blows it apart, even if it's just for a moment. But your problem is not with your stories, your problem is with your addiction. To I. And the minute you start seeing I as an object, you're no longer addicted to it because that which is observing the I can't be addicted to anything. Everything arises within that awareness. It's happening right now in this room as you and I are conversing and everybody else is here. Everybody in this room can observe their experience. They can observe what bubbles up from infinity.
and then they can see the bubble pop. Whether it's a thought, or a feeling, or an opinion, or a problem, comes up, and it goes away, right? But that which can observe that, the divine subject of that divine little object, is free. And every single story that I tell is pushing you and everybody else in that direction, myself included. That's the work. Watch, watch, watch. Watch the eye. Watch your addictions. Watch your pulls. Watch your pushes. Don't hide by turning it into a thing, a story, an object. Don't hide. Be right with it. It won't wipe you out. Actually, it'll wipe out all the stuff you really don't need. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Oh, we did have, actually, I'm sorry. I, I ended a little prematurely. Carla, you got, you got one question? Yeah, yeah let's, well, I apologize. If, we, if our large, big self identifies with this woman who died there on the ground, and we are a part of her, are we not also her killer? Mm-hmm. The big self, just to clarify terms, big self will not identify. But... Okay. If you if you see if you see the grief if if you're moved by that before it becomes those bastards you have your South Park moment if it's just and by the way in saying that I am not trying to diminish her at all her symbol may bring down an entire government you know I mean it's Are you a talking accountability is that ego accountability yeah ego is going to start looking for ego is going to start looking for if you don't have if you just have accountability. Nothing else. Help me. No, anything. Just to be accountable. I'm not sure where, where well, we're going here. Somebody's accountable for her death. Right. Is that just, are we all accountable for her death? Yes. And we died. Okay? From that perspective, to go back to where we started this talk, from the perspective of awakening, we are killer and killed in every moment, within and without. And developing a certain comfort with that takes practice. In other words, what are you doing in your day-to-day -day life that gets really vicious, either internally or externally or somewhere in between? Stop killing. It's one of the vows. I mean, the big vow in spiritual work is don't harm. And so as much as we can say, someone harmed her, as much as we can say that, we might even be able to say it factually, okay? We're also looking at it within. Stop harming. Speaking to her killer is speaking to ourselves, speaking to her, crying tears for her, or crying tears for ourselves. Every one of us has a Hitler inside. Right? Every one of us has Mother Teresa inside. And both of those are given, given uh, life with the cause and conditions of our circumstance each day. Seeing that we are actually beyond both allows us 
to actually not only transcend both, but also become something bigger than our ideas, our ideas about them both. We become agents of truth, liberation, grace, ease, compassion, wisdom. And it doesn't matter. It's not something we cling to. It's not an identity. It's not an I'm more like Mother Teresa now than I was yesterday because I let her in and I made friends with my internal Hitler. Right? It becomes deeper than... That did sound funny, didn't it? Sorry. But it becomes something, something even more broad. We don't even have a choice. We just let it go. Thank you.